me ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 as we continue our study through this magnificent book, Revelation chapter 7. I was talking to somebody just uh, before church this morning saying, wow, I, I read that chapter and I left me wondering, what are you going to say this morning? I'm sure, that, I'm sure that's true for a number of chapters in Revelation, but actually I, I think this book is, is magnificently inspiring and comforting and I think this chapter will be as well. But let's remember as we always remind ourselves that this is God's word. We are, we are people who believe in the authority of God's word. We're a church that holds to God's word having absolute inerrant authority. That all that it says and whatever it says <laughs> has authority. That we come to it not to evaluate it, but to have it evaluate us. For it to shape our theology, whether our historic opinions that were handed down to us by a family tradition or our ideas we came up with in college or whatever those ideas are, we bring them to God's word and under God's word and we allow the text of scripture to shape how we think. So let's have that expectation as we begin to read Revelation chapter 7 verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. And 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away 
every tear from their eyes. Lord, bless the preaching and the believing of your word. I'd like you to picture something in your mind, if you would. Picture the opening gate of an amusement park, except imagine that this is a very different kind of amusement park. In order to get in to the amusement park, you first have to ride the worst roller coaster in the world. So whether you like roller coasters or don't like roller coasters, this is the worst roller coaster in the world. The most devastatingly terrifying, the highest, the deepest, the most uncertain. And you can't get into the park unless you ride it first. And imagine one of those roller coaster stations where you come in and there they are. And usually they have two trains running at the same time. If you've ever seen a roller coaster station, there's the one that's about to head out. And they're getting all their harnesses checked and everything. And then usually right as they're ready to go, there's the one that's coming in right at the end of their ride. And this roller coaster, the people come in harried and worried and bleary-eyed because of the intensity of this particular roller coaster. Now have that, have that idea in your mind. And let's imagine for a moment that there's cameras, as there sometimes are in these places. They take pictures. But this camera takes a picture of the middle of the ride. It takes a picture... When you're first getting ready for the ride, before you go, it takes a picture at the end of the ride. But what we have here in Revelation chapter 7 is the before picture and the after picture of God's people. We have, if you can imagine that roller coaster image, we have the before picture which pictures them before they go on this crazy, intense ride and then we have the after picture when they are rolling back into the station, now able to enter into their future. Now, if you hold that image in your mind, the before picture and the after picture, I think you get some idea of what I think is going on. Now, we've got to demonstrate that from the pe- passage, and I'll try to walk through and explain that. But I wanted to create that image because I think that's basically what's happening in Revelation chapter 7. It is connected very much to Revelation chapter 6. If you remember last week, the chapter ends with God's judgments raining down, cataclysmic, cosmic dangers happening, the sun darkened, the moon going to blood, every mountain and island being flung out of their place. The earth is in this great shock wave of a worldwide earthquake, and the question, the rhetorical question that those on earth ask in a terrified way is, who can stand? And the assumption based on the overwhelming judgments that God is pouring out on the earth is, no one can stand. No one on their own, no one in their own strength, whether they be emperor or slave, no one in themselves can stand. But then, as the brilliant writer that he is, John abruptly pauses the scene. Right at that climactic moment, when cataclysm is coming upon cataclysm and the people are crying out, who can stand? And the assumption is no one. All of a sudden, we enter a very different perspective. Chapter 7 interrupts between the 6th And the seventh seal. Did did you notice that from a literary standpoint? It's brilliant. Right at the climactic moment, it's like, zoom, everything shuts away. And we have another perspective that's given to us. 
And chapter 7, I would say, and one way to put it, chapter 7 is the answer to that question. Who can stand and face the judgment of God? Who can stand? Who can survive? We could put it that way. Who can survive this most devastating of judgments? This most frightening of conclusions? Who can stand the plummeting and devastating end of this life? Who can survive? And then we have chapter 7. Very intentionally answering the question. And it answers it, I would say, with two perspectives. A before perspective and an after perspective. And I might caption those claimed by God and claimed for God. Those are my two points this morning. Claimed by God and claimed for God. This is interrupting and answering the question of who can stand. And it actually says, well, actually, there is a group that will. There is a group that will. Let's talk about their before and their after. Claimed by God, first of all. Claimed by God. The passage opens following that stark question by an interrupting vision. And that will happen again and again in Revelation. We'll go through six cycles of something. And then there's a big interlude making a huge theological point, And then the seventh. Right, it's this sense of anticlimax. You're right at the end, and then he makes a huge point. Right when he has your attention, right when he has you gripping the edge of your seat, he makes his main point. That's what will happen again and again in Revelation. In this case, we see in verse 1, four angels on the four corners of the earth. That's just a symbolic for the, the whole earth. Four is a kind of a symbol of the earth throughout Revelation. And it makes sense. There's a four points of the globe, four corners of the earth, so to speak. They're holding back some kind of wind, it says. And, and they are keeping that from blowing against earth and sea. Now, I think the impression, based on what we just read about, is this isn't like some gentle breeze, okay? This apparently is a wind that needs to be restrained from blowing in some kind of harmful way against the earth. And then this powerful angel, you look down there at verse 2, he ascends from the rising of the sun from the east and with the seal of a living God, a mark of God's ownership and authority, and he calls out with a loud voice to these restraining angels and he says, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So you got a picture in the symbolism of of Revelation, you have four angels that are kind of holding back something that's going to blow with some sort of dangerous, harmful power, and an angel commands them, you're not allowed to unleash that thing until we have sealed the servants of God. We, we have something to do before there is this harmful wind, so to speak, symbolically, that blows onto the earth. Now, we, we have a number of things <laughs> that we have to decide, as, as you would have guessed reading this ahead of time, uh, right off the bat about what is happening here. We have to decide when this is happening. We have to decide who this is talking about. And we have to decide what in the world this number means. So we have to decide when this is happening, who this is talking about, and what this number means. Now, it is possible that you could think of Revelation as just a chronological accounting of one event after the other. But as I said last week, I find that highly problematic because you have these interrupting images, interrupting perspectives that seem to come from various places in the timeline. 
You have the end of the world, apparently, at the end of chapter 6, and then it seems to revert in later verses to a time when the world is still operating basically in its normal procedure. So I think the best way to view that is these different perspectives of the overall event that are not necessarily shared in chronological order, and I think that's what's happening here. I, I find it highly unlikely that this harmful wind, so to speak, is somehow something that happens after the sun is darkened, the, sc- the stars fall from the sky, the earth is shaken, and, and now they're saying, well, don't harm the trees. I, I don't think we're supposed to think of that as, well, the world just got blown up, but now take care of the trees, don't harm the trees. No, I think it's better to think of that as, no, this is talking about sometime prior to what we just read about in chapter 6. It's actually, I think, quite possible that the four angels are connected to those four horses we talked about previously, that the devastation that's coming from all angles on the earth, that this is a time that's looking prior to all of that devastation and saying, wait, before the judgment of God falls, there's something that has to happen. Now, somebody could think, well, no, 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 this is, there was somehow a preservation of trees <laughs> and seeing what I would think. I, I find that highly unlikely. I think this is more a before picture talking about, hey, we want you to know that the answer to that question actually took place before it was asked. That the answer to that question, who can stand, God had already answered before the judgments began. It wasn't like God in that moment said, oh, gosh. What do we do? We've got to be aware of God's people. Don't lose them in all the earthquakes. No, the point of going to the before picture is, no, no, I need you to know there was something that happened before the judgments ever took place. Before this devastating roller coaster ride of judgment, there was a moment that God decided about his people. So I think this is referring to a time, first of all, before the judgments took place, before those seals in chapter 6. Now, we have to ask, who, who is this talking about? Who is sealed? The verse says in verse 3 that they will seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then there's this number, 144,000, and then a listing of various tribes of Israel. All right, 144,000 are going to be sealed. Who is this? Now, because Israel and the tribes are referenced, it, it is the case that some people would say, well, these are Jewish Christians. This is a uniquely comforting word to Jewish Christians, and this is referencing them that are ethnically descended from Abraham, have believed in Christ, and this is reminding them in a particular way that God is watching over them. Now, there are some legitimate people, legitimate commentators who would, would claim that. I, I, I would disagree, but if someone believed that, I think a, a legitimate expression could be this is just Jewish Christians. A Gentile Christian would just take comfort in knowing that these same promises are given to every kind of Christian everywhere and that the Jewish Christian is, is not uniquely uh, to be protected in that sense. But I, I don't think for that reason that that is what's going on here. I think this is just yet another example of symbolism in Revelation when Israel is being described spiritually and not just ethnically. And that happens throughout the book. Israel and the symbolism of Israel is being described spiritually and symbolically. For example, when the new Jerusalem comes down, I, I don't think that's just the city. 
of geopolitical Israel. I think that is the city, the symbolic city of all of God's people. So we do that throughout the book. We, we connect these Israeli and Israel and Old Testament images and apply them to the new people of God. I think that's what's going on. And, and actually, I wanted to enlist much smarter help than I am to speak to this. This is what G.K. Beale says. And these are a long couple of quotes, but I think they're worth it uh, to get to this point. He says, who are the 144,000? They are unlikely to be literal Israelites living at the very end of history during a severe tribulation, nor are they literal Israelites living during the desecration of Israel's second temple in the first century. For in either case, God's protection would apply only to ethnic Jews and a limited number of them rather than to his people redeemed from every nation, including Jewish believers in Jesus. Such a suggestion, that this was just literal ethnic Jews, would be alien to the teaching of the New Testament. A better understanding comes, as it often does, from the context. In 5.9, the Lamb is said to have purchased with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And in 14.3 and 4, this is very important, the 144,000, you can look it up in your Bibles, are said to have been purchased from the earth and purchased from among men. The almost identical language suggests that the two are the same group, the church of all ages. This would explain why immediately after the vision of the sealing, this context is also important, John sees a great multitude of people from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, all believers in Christ throughout the ages are sealed and must be included in the 144,000. He says elsewhere, and bear with me, I know these are long quotes, but I think they're worth it. This is consistent with the identification elsewhere in the New Testament of the church composed of Jews and Gentiles, listen, as fulfilling predictions of Israel's restoration. And if you want references, he provides a ton. And being called true Jews, as in Romans, or Israel, as in Romans and Galatians, or the true circumcision, as in Philippians 3, or the 12 tribes, as in James 1 and 1, or dispersed Israelites, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, 9. In fact, including Gentiles as part of true end-time Israel is prophesied in the Old Testament. So Psalm 87, Isaiah, and especially so forth into Ezekiel and Zechariah. The point being that even in the Old Testament, and definitely in the New, there was this pattern of describing Israel spiritually and not just ethnically. That's the point, for example, if you just pick the one from Philippians 3.3, where Paul says, we are the real circumcision describing those who have believed in Jesus, or we are the offspring of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, describing all those who have faith in Christ. But the point is that ethnic Israel are included insofar as they have trusted in Christ, and all those who have trusted in Christ from every nation have become the true Israel that is found in Jesus, the true Israelite. That, I think, is what's going on here. I don't think John, and an important contextual point, we read those two chapters worth of messages to these largely Gentile churches. I don't think he's writing here to say, and by the way, there's a particular protection just for Jewish Christians. He's not writing just to Jewish Christians. He's writing to Jewish and Gentile Christians. I think a more profound point is being made. You, Church of Christ, are the new Israel. 
Jew and Gentile, covered in the person of Christ, you receive the same covenant hesed protection that God's people claim throughout the ages. You are not substandard citizens of the kingdom. You are just as much the people of God as those people of God in the Old Testament because you are found now in Christ, the Son of God. I think that's the point that's being made. He's not pulling down ethnic Christians, he's raising Gentile Christians to the status of the favored and protected of God. Now, also, we have to ask, why this specific number, 144,000? Obviously, there are people that would claim, well, this is a literal number. I find that highly unlikely. Numbers are so consistently symbolic in Revelation. And this number, it's just impossible not to see how the symbolism works. We've already seen that 12 and 12 together represent the whole people of God. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, and in this case, they're raised to the third power of 10, indicating a very large, in the minds of the original readers, a very large but a definite amount of people. That's actually exactly what Dennis Johnson says. He says, the number 12 symbolizes the complete people of God and the counsel of their leaders, whereas high powers of 10... A thousand, ten to the third power, myriad, ten to the fourth power, signify great quantities. Therefore, this group is numbered as 144,000 to emphasize figuratively that this is a picture of the church in its entirety, not in part, which has been redeemed. I think this is a symbolic number. It's indicating a, that God knows precisely those who are his, and they will be the full and complete complement of God's people through all the ages, 12 representing God's people, and a lot of zeros representing all of them. I think that's the simplest, and as I've said before, often in Revelation, I think the simplest explanation often is the most likely one. Often it's the most likely one. And for a person, I, I like to describe him as the average fisherman on the Mediterranean Sea hearing this letter read aloud. I think what he would hear about is, I think he would get, oh yeah, 12 and 12. I get that that is 144. I get that. And then it's a lot of them. I think that's basically how that would strike him. And I think that's basically how it's supposed to strike us. It's a lot of them. It's a precise number. And it's all of God's people through the ages. Then he lists out these tribes. It's interesting to note, too, a point against the idea that this is actually only ethnic uh, Jewish Christians. Uh, This is a very unusual listing of tribes. It leaves out the tribe Dan, probably because Dan was uniquely known to have led God's people into idolatry. It includes the tribe of Reuben, (laughs) which was known as having disqualified himself. It also includes Levi, who was said in the Old Testament to have no inheritance or possession other than God. So I think what's going on here is this is just a representative list of 12 tribes indicating all of God's people counted as the 12 complement to their perfect and ultimate power have been sealed, and here's, here's the main point. Whatever you think about 144,000, whatever you think about the identity of those, here, here's the main point that I think thinking to be made. They are sealed by God before the judgment of God comes. Th- that's, I think, the main comforting point. I don't think we're actually supposed to be overly concerned about well, how, how exactly we figure this out. I think it's the full complement of God's people symbolically represented. 
But I think the main point is what he says in verse 3. Do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. It would have been a mark of ownership. And just a quick point, because later on we're going to talk about being marked, those who are marked by the devil. And there are concerns occasionally with what exactly is that physical mark, the 666 mark and so forth. It's worth noting that I, I actually find it sometimes interesting. Christians don't, are not often bothered by the fact that they're not physically sealed by this seal. <laughs> um, and, and if it's all physical, then they should be very concerned that they're not sealed by this seal as well. I, I think the whole thing is symbolic. It's marked spiritually as owned and claimed by God. It's not as though the only people who are Christians are those who actually have a tattoo on their forehead belonging to God. Nobody seems to worry about that. But that could be a problem if it's all literal. Um, but it's spiritual in which every person from God's perspective is claimed. As surely as if there was a tattoo on their head. They are claimed by God. God knows those who are his. If, if I can use the analogy of that roller coaster ride. If God is there on the station before the crazy, insane ride, which basically I'm saying is this life under the curse of God for sin, God goes to his people and he harnesses them in. That's mine. And that's mine. And that's mine. And that's mine. Yeah, they're going to go on the ride. And it's intense. But they're mine. He's making sure, he's claiming, they are mine. They are mine. Don't do a thing. Don't you dare push go until we claim those who are mine. That's, I think, the point for the church. That's the point, I think, that makes sense for those people just living on the side of the Mediterranean Sea and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea and so forth. They're hearing, yeah, God has claimed me. These scary, intense things and what God's going to do in the world. He's going to judge non-Christians. Are we going to get lost in all of that? I mean, I, 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 th this is devastating and, and world-changing and everything secure is being taken away. And, and, and not only that, but we're going to be persecuted. People are going to hate us for believing in Jesus. And it's easy to think we could get lost in all of that danger. And God says, no, I sealed you before any of that happens. I know you. I've claimed you. This is one of those passages that I think points to the sovereign grace of God on his people. It points to the sovereign grace of God on his people. These people are not more impressive than everyone else. They weren't claimed because they're better life riders. They can better handle God's judgment. They're more able to turn upside down and not fall out. No, no, no. They are only secure because God secured them. Because God sealed them. So the church is meant to hear, God sealed me before anything happened. God chose me. And don't we know that in our lives to be true? That it were it not for the grace of God claiming us and laying claim on us, we would have no hope to face his judgment. We would be with those who would say, I can't stand except that God laid claim on me. I could never stand except God laid claim on me. To think that we could stand would be as insane as thinking you could survive the worst roller coaster in the world without a harness. No, you can't. But God strapped you in with his seal. 
claimed by God. Every single one. I think that's the point of the precise number. It's not that there's actually 144,000 literally in the world. Otherwise, none of us would have any hope, okay? I guarantee there's already been that many before you were born. None of us would have any hope. That's where the, the, some cults get it wrong in this category. No, 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 no. The, the point is not literally there's 144,000. The, the point is to their last one, God knows them. To their absolute fullness, God knows them. God knows them precisely and completely. And he sealed them before any of this judgment got started. That's meant to comfort the church. You've been claimed by God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a child of Abraham in the sense that you have faith in his offspring, in Jesus Christ, if you have claimed to be a part of the new Israel by attaching yourself to the vine that is Christ, then you, my brother or sister, have been claimed and sealed by the Almighty in preparation and in safety in facing his judgment. That's good news. And then he fast forwards, I think, to demonstrate and prove that point by the after picture, which I would caption claimed for God. Claimed by God and claimed for God. In the second half of the passage, John looks and then he hears. He looks and he sees and then he hears an explanation. And when he looks, he beholds a great multitude. And again, this is why I think the 144,000 is symbolic. He says, no one could number. No one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes indicating purity and victory and palm branches, which is a way of celebrating the kingship of Christ and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then all the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they all, in this case, fall down on their faces and affirm that worship, saying, Amen. And they give again a sevenfold glory to Christ. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Here, here's the after picture. Here's the after picture. After the ride through this fallen world is complete, that devastatingly terrifying at times ride in which you were secured, here's the picture of you in the future, believer in Christ. And you stand, it says there, as part of a multitude from every tribe and people and language and nation that God has gathered as a remnant of humanity. And what they are doing is declaring with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. This whole passage is meant to glorify the sovereign grace of God. It's meant to get us to trust that our destiny is in the hands of God. That's the point of the passage. Trust that your eternal security and destiny is in the hands of God. That's why the saints declare salvation belongs, belongs to who? Not to our good works, not to any earthly ruler, not to any earthly prophet, not to any religious adherence. Nope. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. He gets the glory because he did it all. 
Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who was slain for his people. Notice, notice that the designation Lamb is not just the occasional designation of Christ that came up in chapter 5. It comes up again and again and again. I just want to reiterate a point I've made before. The crucifixion of Christ, Christ as sacrificial victim, is not an incidental blip necessary but forgotten in heaven. It is the central figure that is celebrated about what he did. And therefore it ought to be celebrated in how we think about him. All the angels affirm this worship. And seeing this, John then hears. One of the elders, one of these angelic figures from chapter 4 addresses him and says, Who are these clothed in robes and from where have they come? John, who is not in that setting infected with the overconfidence of our age, says, Sir, you know. And the elder begins to describe what it means to be claimed for God. What it means to be claimed for God. It means worship and declaration that God alone gets the glory for salvation. We've seen that. And now he says, let me tell you what it is like to be claimed by God. To be, to be have strapped in and secured and then and, and guaranteed this future. Here's what the future is. Now that you can actually enter the paradise that I've prepared for you, let, let me tell you what it's like. Let me tell you what it's like when you're in there. Let me tell you what God has for you since you are not just claimed by God, you are claimed for God, for his worship, and also for his benefits. He says these are the ones, these White-robed figures, they are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, another point again made. They are only here because Jesus died for their sins. They are only here because Jesus died for their sins. When you get to heaven, you will only be there because Jesus died for your sins. That is the only reason you will be there. You will not be there because you were impressive or smart or intelligent or academically gifted or gifted in business or a great wife or a great husband or nice to your neighbor. You will only be there if you believe that Jesus died for your sins because the only white-robed people in heaven are those who have washed their sins by confessing them to God and claiming the death of Jesus in their place. That's the only kind of humans that are in heaven. These are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And look what privileges he gives to them. They are before the throne of God. They, descendants of Adam and Eve, you, despite all of your Petty sins and ugly sins and embarrassing sins and limitations and insufficiencies. You are before the throne of God in this picture. Listen, Christian, this is your after picture. This is meant to encourage the church. This is your after picture. They are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. The language here is priestly language. It means you are no longer on the outside. You're not in the court of the Gentiles. You're not out with the uncircumcised, so to speak. You are in 
among God's people in the very presence of God, in the throne room with myriads of angels and these overwhelmingly powerful creatures there as part of the intimate choir of the risen lamb. You are there, Christian, in this after picture. You know how you do that when you take a picture and you look for your face first because we're all proud as we can possibly be? You look, well, here is your face if you believed in Jesus. There, in the temple of God, worshiping the Lamb. This is infinitely more of what your actual life will be than your life here. Because you will do this forever. The life here is a minute. It's a minute compared to a a century of life. It's a weekend compared to a thousand years. It, it's, it's the briefest time. It's not even, it doesn't even deserve to be called a season, an era, a part. It, it, it's compared to this, this is your life. This is my life, living in the temple of God. We, we exaggerate this life with such insignificance and importance, and it is valuable in the sense that we're serving the same one that we will meet there. But in terms of our context, this is far more our context than here. They will serve him day and night in his temple. And listen to these promises. What's it like in there? He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. We will experience the unveiled, protecting, comforting presence of the infinite God. And the result will be they will never know hunger. Think about that. For all of human history, the number of people that live in hunger that will never take place. Your worry about job loss and insecurity and the future of aging, all gone. They won't thirst anymore. You'll, you'll never face a moment. The, the imagery here is of a person out facing the scorching heat of the Middle East without any food, without provisions, without thirst. That's how this world is viewed as being under that kind of uncertainty and, and, and insecurity. It says that's not going to be present anymore. And the reason is that the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. This one who died for us will take us as lambs to gentle streams and comforting pasture. You'll never outgrow your need for him. You'll just always live in the goodness of his provision. And this categorical phrase, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. Every tear. Tears of physical pain and tears of relational heartache and tears of betrayal and tears of mental decline and instability and tears of death, tears of fallen hopes and broken dreams, tears of gossip and slander harming your reputation. Tears of vulnerability in the dark powers of this age. Tears of disappointing elections and disappointing national trajectories. Tears of 
children who are wandering, all of those tears will be wiped away in the joy of his presence. That's what's inside there. Because we've been claimed Christians by the blood of the Lamb, have been not just claimed by God, we've been claimed for God. Heaven is not just this better earth with better securities. It's living in the presence of God. We we just do not know what that is like. We get glimpses of it on Sunday when we're worshiping and we're having a a moment in God's word. We, We get glimpses of it when we're working something we're gifted to do and we feel a certain joy in the work and we're aware that we're pleasing God. We get glimpses of it, but here it is in its fullness without any of the dangers or brokenness of this fallen world or any effects of our sin. So here there is real joy in the accomplishments of others without any of the marring of jealousy or envy. Here there is real worship without any of the limitations of the fear of man. Here there is real labor without any of the difficulties of physical weakness or unfair business practices. Here there is real exaltation without any sense that eventually I have to go back to the sad things of this life. Here there are all of those things without more, without shadow, without restraint because we live in the unveiled presence of the Lamb who is the shepherd of his people. Now this is why it is devastatingly disappointing that Christians don't read Revelation. Overwhelmingly, the message of this book is clear, comforting, exhorting to endure. Are are there parts, like the beginning of this passage, that, yeah, maybe you could see that one way or this way or that way? Sure, possibly. Possibly some confusing parts here and there. Sure, possibly. But overwhelmingly, the message is, If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, your future is magnificent. And the only reason you're there is because God settled your destiny before any of these judgments came into being. This is a magnificently comforting word. It's meant to come to us and cause us to trust, to have hope, to believe. Let me press that to us. Listen, if you live in fear of the ride of this age, I've said this multiple times, I just want to keep pressing it. Listen to the word of the Lord. You know that fear is refusing to believe what God has said? Fear, anxiety, it is refusing to believe what God has said. That this life is temporary, that he will provide for us in the midst of it, that he has given us everything we need to glorify him, though he has not promised that we'll have everything we want in this age, and that the future, which will be so far beyond anything we could imagine, that this life will seem just a blip on the screen, that there is no reason to live in fear or anxiety in this age. Fear and anxiety, it's just saying no to Revelation 7. Peace and trust is saying yes. This is where, if I can put it this way, the rubber meets the road. We can read Revelation 7 and be like, oh, isn't that sweet of God? Isn't that nice? That's a pleasant sermon to hear on Sunday. And I'm going to go out and be anxious all week long. No, that's not treating this as God's word. 
That's treating this as a nice collection of religious sayings that we hear that please us on Sunday while we go out and live in the real world. This is the real world. What this is meant to do is to say, yeah, stop Stop living in fear for the temporary and sometimes scary ride of this life because you've been strapped in to the person and work of Christ. If you believed in Jesus, this is your future, and it is glorious. Fear and anxiety is saying no to Revelation 7 if you're a Christian. Don't say no. Say, yes, I believe this. And I don't just believe this for the future. I believe because it's the future, it's more important than anything that's happening right now. On your worst day, this makes your day better than a person who would not believe in Jesus. On your worst day, this is still true. Say yes to Revelation 7 this week when you're faced with anxiety. We speak to parents. And let me continue the illustration just for a moment. Sometimes, as parents, we forget that this is what's going on. And sometimes, where we're in the before picture, which we all are at some level, we're, we're kind of in the ride, we, we forget that the main thing to make sure about our children is that they have believed in Jesus Christ. And, and, and we would never say it that way, but sometimes we get concerned about other things. If I could use the illustration, imagine a parent on that ride, about to go on that ride, who is concerned mostly with everything else. Well, let's, uh, let, maybe you can, how, how are you looking these days? And let's, let's, let's make sure that, you know, other good things are done, homework, and let's double check on your accomplishments and experiences, and we want to make sure you have a good life. Now, no parent would actually do that, <laughs> actually, because you're, you're living with reality. Okay, I, I don't care about your hat, okay? And I don't care about your phone or your camera. We're about to, are you strapped in? And you need to know, I, I, I don't care about those things. I care about you being strapped in. I mean, relatively speaking, relatively speaking, it's not that they're unimportant in every sense, of course, but relatively speaking, I could care less. What grades you get, or what accomplishments you have, or how secure your physical life. I mean, I care about these. I want you to please the Lord. I want you to serve others. Sure. Yeah, let's spend a little. But compared to this, let's, let's press into Jesus. Let's look to the Lamb. Let's wash your sins in his blood. And you can't make your child a Christian, but you can clarify to them that being a Christian matters infinitely more than any of this other stuff. Are you strapped in? Have you believed in Christ? Do you have reasonable assurance that he has laid claim on your soul? That should be the passion of the parent to their child or the older Christian to the younger Christian. Are you strapped into Christ? That was the claim of the old Puritan preachers. That's what they would hound their people about. Are you sure? It doesn't mean your assurance makes you a Christian, but it should be what you're about. Are you clinging to Christ? Is your life set on Christ? Don't be distracted by all the temporary things in this world. Are you set in Christ? Because if you are, all of this is temporary, and you have a glorious future waiting for you. 
So parents and older Christians, I, I find it to be the case in our age that there is such pluralism, it creeps into the church, that even older, mature Christians are reluctant to make this claim on younger Christians. Older women, at times, are reluctant to press these priorities with younger women because it's, well, I don't want to offend anybody. We all have our different ways of living. There is only one way of life. Older men sometimes reluctant to make the same claims to younger men. Because I don't want to offend and I don't want to assume that my way. No, no. The point is, are you assured of your position in Christ? This, this is what matters. And it is a glorious thing to matter. And for those that struggle with fear and anxieties about the things of this age, they need to be reassured. Listen, I, I, I get it. That's hard. I, I get it that you, you, didn't, you missed out on your soccer season. And, and I get it that you're disappointed you didn't get into the college you wanted. And, and I get it that it's hard to not know about your future and, and you're wanting to get married. And there's, there's, I, I get it. That's hard. And you're facing this physical challenge and once again, your back is aching. And once again, you're, you're dealing with the difficulties of, of a, an oppressive age that's pressing against your faith. I, I get it. That's, that's hard. to come with compassion. But, but here's the real hope. Christ has claimed you. If you believe in him, Christ has claimed you. And your future is glorious. It's full of worship and joy and the freedom from any of the pains you're facing right now. Here. Here is the comfort we need. Here is the security we need. I think that's the point that John writes this image about right as he describes the end of the world. He says, now, now, now pause, let's back up. I want to give you the before and after picture of God's people. Secured by Christ. Secured for Christ. Living in perfect joy and the absence of pain forever. Giving all glory to the God to whom salvation belongs. This is our identity. This is what we are. This is what Christians believe. This makes all the difference from one day and one week to the next. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy at the security we have in you. Lord, I pray that our limitations and our weaknesses and even our sins that we struggle with, Lord, would not be bigger to us than the sovereign grace that you have provided by claiming your people and by guaranteeing them a future of joy with you. Lord, fill our hearts with the privilege of being able to answer that question. Who can stand? We can stand because of Christ and only because of Christ. Lord, let our voices ring out now in anticipation of that moment joining that choir then. You are our salvation. You are our shepherd. You are our lamb. And through the darkness of this world, we look to the future that we will be with you full of joy and glory and confidence and security forever. And that defines us more than any twist, more than any turn, more than any darkness of this age. We look to you and we find joy in our security in you. Receive our worship this morning in Jesus' name.